0: Welcome to the Omni Gamers Club podcast. This is Mark USA. And this is Daniel Winter. So Daniel, what uh, what have you been playing this week?
1: Uh, a few different things. We've been uh, in, in Vancouver here. It's obviously getting a little more dark and cold and, and wet, as you might have noticed. Uh, and you know what that means, a lot more time for games. So I've, uh, in, in the digital realm, I've been playing uh, some of the Final Fantasy uh, video games. I've finally wrapped up the Final Fantasy VII remake on uh, PlayStation. I never actually played the original. I was a Nintendo Nintendo kid growing up, <laughs> so uh, I, I finally returned. I finally played uh, that. Uh, though I now, I now realise that I should probably play the original as well because it's very much informed by that. It's not a direct remake. In after that, I've just started Final Fantasy XII, uh, which I'm enjoying so far. So I'm excited to see some more of that.
0: Your talk of Final Fantasy XII on social media has me excited to dip into that again like a lot of final fantasy games for me i've started a lot of them multiple <laughs> times i've started final fantasy 7 the original like three times i've started final fantasy 12 at least twice uh, i think the last one i beat was 15 uh, which was fairly you know streamlined game but uh, i definitely would like to dip into 12 again and if it weren't for my other load of games <laughs> i'm just going to mention a couple while i'm thinking about them bga i've been playing innovation a pal uh, chris morris taught me a game way back but it didn't sink in until um our friend matt sat me down and i've played two or three games since then and i've won one pretty handily and been pasted a couple other times so <laughs> i don't think i have it down but i'm starting to see how it works on the video game side i've been playing some hollow Knight, which i'm really enjoying and last night I cracked open some Avengers, which is a really slick, and it plays super well on Xbox Cloud Gaming. So try that out if you haven't yet. Yeah,
1: I've, I saw that this dropped on Game Pass, and I'm quite curious. Obviously, there've been some pretty mixed
0: reactions to that game, but um, it can't hurt to try it out, I guess, on, on Game Pass. You know, it's sort of like a MCU movie. It's really polished, flashy. It's lacking a little in sophistication, but you know, it's got a lot of heart. And I, you know, I really like the um, protagonist of this one, and you know, it's doing some interesting things story-wise. It's so funny that it's it's a really handcrafted single-player game that is also a multiplayer-focused game online service, service game. <laughs> so it, it's it's kind of like got a split personality already, and I think that might have been what led to the mixed reaction. Give it a shot. It at least it's beautiful to look at.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Ms. Marvel comics so I'm excited to see her get some screen time since she hasn't been in the movies yet. Oh she's definitely the protagonist of this one. (laughs) As far as anything else we've been playing if you can hear some more on a new podcast that we've cameoed on there's a podcast called What You've Been Playing Wednesdays part of the Bridge City Board Gamers Crew out of Saskatoon, and each week they put out this this podcast, basically curating all of the Canadian podcasters and content creators from across the country. Some of our friends, like Chris, you just mentioned, up in uh, in Kelowna and and Covray in Alberta. Uh, so lots of lots of great people to to check out there. And we're now part of the crew, giving some thoughts each week. So check that out
0: for sure. And you've been playing some oath, I see.
1: Yes, I just I, I had played a, a tutorial game a few weeks ago we've just started to try to get a a more regular group happening with that so we just played our first game a couple of nights ago and it was it was a very (laughs) strange uh way that it rolled out with the with the wind conditions there you never quite know how that game's going to go but it's it's a fascinating game it's so incredibly dynamic every single card just changes
0: the complete port state for sure i'm very curious about that i'm not super enamored with that designers games route I, i famously do not uh, have a, a good opinion of but i know so many have so there must be something good there not usually a huge fan
1: of strategy war games with a lot of player interaction but with that art style it's it's so captivating to not, not at least give it a fair shot so i'm, I'm not going to dig into it a little more
0: yeah kyle Farron's artwork is beautiful daniel what do you think should we talk about today's war game of the week let's get to it what have we been studying this week mark Today's game is it's going to be Architects of the West Kingdom, released in 2018 by designers Shem Phillips and S.J. McDonald. And with art
1: by The Miko, who has become incredibly prevalent across the, the board game community right now, and some of my favourite games with his art that's incredibly stylistic and, and captivating. And the publisher by Garpill Games.
0: Now, uh, what kind of game is this, uh, Daniel? Because Garpill Games puts out so much stuff, it's just kind of hard to tell what game is what and how, how they're different.
1: <laughs> well, this one's pretty clearly a worker placement game. We've discussed a couple of those. I mean, all of the board games we've discussed so far in this podcast have been somewhat worker placement-based, but this is the most explicitly in that genre. So whereas Beyond the Sun, you just have one worker, it's not really... A traditional worker placement game is just a, an action selection more. This you have each player has twenty workers that you're taking turns placing down in various locations. But it wouldn't be a Shem Phillips game if it didn't have a spin on those mechanics. So how does this differ from other worker placement games, Mark?
0: Well, your first point is is clear. A lot of games you start with a couple of workers and then you build up, ala Agricola, uh, Stone Age, and things like that. But this game, you start with all of your workers, and then you may actually lose some overtime through one or more means. The bulk of the actions are really dead simple things you've seen a million times. Put meeples down on a space, get resources, put meeples down on a space, get money. Couldn't be easier. And I think that's a great aspect of a lot of Garfield games, that they have entry points that make it easy. If you've played any other games in a similar genre before, they're really easy to approach. Some mechanisms really differ, as in other players can capture your meeples, or you might invest meeples in a given space, like the cathedral spaces, and they may no longer be accessible to you. You lose meeples over time. So it's kind of the inverse of games like Agricola.
1: What you're actually doing, we should explain here, is it's set in, is it 850? It has a very specific setting, whereas in most, a lot, a lot of these medieval themed games are very vague and
0: ambiguous. It's just... Right. There are Carolingians involved, I believe.
1: Yes, which isn't something I know I know a terrible amount of. Uh, it's not a, a period of history that's particularly well covered. And that's, I'm saying that as someone who has a degree in archaeology. Uh, But it does have a very specific setting. And as far as the the, the theme of the game goes, I have to imagine it's a time with a lot of paranoia and suspicion going around the way you're uh, rounding up your uh, fellow workers.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, this is a very tiny aside, but that aspect of it, which is baked in right into all the mechanisms, really sort of made me feel – think of two different time periods – The American colonies and the witch trials,
1: yeah, in Salem,
0: Massachusetts, and places like that, and also like McCarthyism in the 1950s and people calling each other out as being Reds and and um, (laughs) aspects like that. Of course, Nazi Germany, of course, but that aside, it's all about kind of sniping at each other and people in the community as well. Yeah, so I mean, this game
1: is definitely has a, a large element of player interaction compared to most worker placement games, whereas in most it's just a matter of your worker is in this space, I can't go to that space. In this game, except with a couple of small exceptions, any one space can have any number of workers from any number of players. The more that happen to gather in, in a space, not only are you powering up your abilities, so the more workers in a space, your actions become more powerful, but they also become juicier targets for that player interaction. Is uh, I guess the, the the key part of this is the town hall.
0: Right, the town center. That's the action you take where you can gather up meeples belonging to other people. When they've sort of consolidated too much power in an area, you can sort of take them down. It's a little bit different between two players, three players, and four, but essentially taking a group of your opponent's meeples or your own, you're allowed to take back your own, You can take back meeples and place them in this sort of temporary holding space on your board. They're out of the hands of your opponents. There's a third place that you can take them as well, and then that's when it gets really interesting. Yeah, so I mean, you you basically,
1: you're holding them in your own personal holding cell, and then can send them to the central prison, and you get a nice uh, handful of coins for doing so, which is one of the uh, handiest ways of of getting income in this game is... uh, rounding up and, and putting suspicion on your fellow workers. But you then have to go to the jail to basically break them out or, or bribe them out of, of prison, I guess. You start the game with 20, but you they quickly disappear across the board and in other people's cells and in prison. So trying to manage the flow of those over the game is, is really the key puzzle.
0: Yeah, I think those two key incentives that you pointed out there are a very smart way that the designers have uh, forced the players to interact with their opponents. You're making your opponents weaker and you're making money by turning them in, taking them to the guardhouse. On top of that, we should mention that this game has a really strong core component as well, a virtue track. You're either good and godly in the eyes of the community, which means you have high virtue or you have low virtue, which means you're into crime and skullduggery and dishonesty. (laughs) depending on where you're physically at on that track, you have access to different abilities and different effects. And that's strongly woven in throughout the whole game. That's really like the third pillar of this game is the virtue track, the rounding up of people through the effect of the town center and the guard house. And those three together work magnificently and really make this game stand out. Yeah, I can't think of
1: another game,
0: another board game that is
1: with a morality system like this. It's almost like a Bioware good versus evil. Uh, and it's something I've always struggled with in, in RPGs like that is, like, I, I always struggle with playing the evil side. I, I, I'm i I'm, I'm always a good boy. Um, but there is obviously a mechanical benefit here to playing evil. Uh, and it, it is a game that has some lovely thematic touches, so it's hard to not to lean into that sometimes with, with depending on where you are on the virtue track and sort of building it into some emergent storytelling. At some point, it often benefits you to dip into the the low virtue to get some discounts and not pay your taxes, but at some point, you're never really probably going to want to quit the life of crime and start raising that virtue again. And where when you decide to start doing that is really key sort of the cut Cut your losses at
0: the right time. <laughs> I think that's the interesting, the most interesting thing about that track is it would be boring if it was being high is good and being low is bad. But no, in this game, you can actually be mechanically advantageous to be low throughout your entire game. There are definitely ways and combinations of cards and techniques, uh, strategies, so that you can win the game as a really. You know, low, low down, a criminal, and and use it to your advantage. Likewise, you can be a goody-goody, and you can you can excel in scoring points as well. And and that's the beauty of it. The key difference with the virtue, other than you know looking nice, is that when your virtue is high, you do not have access to the black market actions. And when your virtue is too low, you are unable to build parts of the cathedral. So you actually lose access to key strategies of the game. And that's really powerful balancing when to dip in and out or under those, those tiers is crucial to succeeding in the game. And I thought that was a, you know, delicious challenge to weave. Um, I've played this game three or four times. I've tried to be really good. I've tried to be really bad. I've tried to be really <laughs> neutral. Your opinion might differ. I think it does not benefit you to be neutral in this game. I think you really have to be most of the way good or most of the way bad to have a strong impact on this game. What do you think about that? Yeah, you really want to lean
1: into one with or the other. I, I just played a two-player game this last week where I, I forced myself to to break bad for the first time. Uh, racked up a lot of debt and uh, found a way to, to slowly pay those off. And there's some interesting synergies there with uh, how you can deliberately take that upon yourself and use that to your advantage. But... From good virtue, the benefit is mostly points. You have points, and it allows you to engage with the cathedral building track. And the low virtue gives you basically a flat discount for most of the actions in the game for when you're spending coins, which really adds up over over the course
0: of several rounds. There's a bunch of ways to score points in this game, but I would say that building buildings and building cathedral spots are probably the two main ways of gain points. Would you agree with that? I think the cathedral maxes out at 20
1: points, which is the, the biggest chunk in the game. I mean, it's, it's, it's a relatively low scoring game. Most of the points, the final scores I've seen are around the 40 points mark. So no one thing is going to really get you a lot of points
0: here, but you have to, to grab them wherever you can. Right. So I'd say those two are the main avenues of doing it. Of course you can gain, you know, like a lot of Euro games, you can gain points for just having resources or just having money. Another key way you can do it is by gaining those debts, which you can gain in a bunch of different ways, mostly from being on the low end of the virtue track or having lots of your meeples in the guardhouse when a certain, certain event happens, which we'll go into. <laughs> uh, and so you get those debts, and when you get those debts, they're worth negative points. But if you take a certain action, pay a certain amount of money, I believe you can flip those debts. And you actually get positive points out of those. So no,
1: that's actually not correct. See, in, in that, and that's uh, one thing uh, you touched on, um, in that how some of the similarity between this and Shem's other games can be a little confusing because that's, that's certainly the case in Paladins of the West Kingdom. You flip a debt, <laughs> okay. and it gives you points. Whereas in this one, you you flip a debt and you get, get virtue. So that's one of the uh, ways you can start working way back up again. Is there a bunch of of debt, and then wait to the last minute, start paying those off,
0: and then shooting back up that virtue track. I knew there was a way to at least staunch that bleeding of losing those negative points.
1: <laughs> but
0: I know that's something you mentioned,
1: in, at least to me personally, in terms of the the iconography, but the, the similarity between these two games can somewhat help and hinder it sometimes. That they're, cl- they're so close that it helps you in some ways, but then in the small ways that they differ, it's really going to throw you off.
0: If we can have that tangent for right now, <laughs> let me just go into it. Is, you know, I love the art of this game. It's beautiful, of course. I, I even think the graphic design is really clean and consistent with the other games, you know, your paladins, your uh, raiders, but. The icons are the same across the games in this series, but the usage of them is different, or the meaning of them is different, which I think causes more confusion than it helps. It's nice to know that this one icon means victory points in every one of their games, but what does this purple version of it mean? It's it's just adding too much confusion to it. And it's not just Garfield games either. It happens in any sh- kind of shared universe games like Race for the Galaxy, Roll for the Galaxy, New Frontiers, right? They're trying to be consistent, but because the games are different, it's just causing a lot of confusion. At least it does to me.
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit of uh, uncanny valley of, of iconography, and it's, it's, it's just close enough, but where where they differ, it, re- it really uh, can make a big difference to c- cause confusion, especially when you're trying to, to teach it or j- jumping back and forth between different ones. So, but I, I, these games really are all about deciphering iconography isn't it and you're going to be flicking back and forth between the uh the 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 reference sheets for the first couple of games unfortunately
0: so let's dive into a little bit more of the mechanisms because i think we missed a couple of them like a lot of the garfield games has light engine building mechanisms and one of the key ways that you build up your engine is by gaining these assistants And assistants do a couple of things for you. So basically, assistants will help you. They will give you some sort of benefit whenever you go to one of the main action spaces. So it might say um, town center, or it might say guardhouse, or it might say black market. And then it will give you a bonus, or it will negate a penalty, or will give you some sort of benefit that you didn't have before. Uh, the other thing that the assistants do is they have these icons which sort of designate what types of buildings you can build and there are three different kinds right yes yeah there's three different symbols three different symbols for the three different types of buildings that you can build and some of these buildings which are a key way to make score points in the game will require one or more of those three different symbols And another point where the graphic design is incredibly frustrating is that the ax looks a lot like the hammer or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Two of those are very similar. Right. And their shades are somewhat close at that tiny, tiny size that I just wish the shapes were entirely different or differently oriented. A small point, those assistants like games like paladins are really crucial to building up your engine and creating synergies especially combined with your variable player power or whichever strategy you've decided to pursue, whether high virtue or low virtue.
1: Yeah, that's a a relatively mild element of of engine building, but that's really that you customize what element of the game you're focusing on. It might be as simple as when you go to the forest to collect wood, you get an extra wood. Uh, but it helps speed up some of those actions in the, in the parts of the game you want to focus on. And there are a couple of clever ways of combining
0: those uh, into with with some unique synergies. Some combinations are a little OP. <laughs> you might even say a little game breaking or a little. Uh, they form dominant strategies. Uh, a couple I can think of came up pretty early: the gatekeeper and squire. They are assistants that sort of work well with each other, and I think they're designed to work well with each other. They sort of form this positive feedback loop, and I think there's another one that benefits you for collecting and flipping debts, and then they give you points for those flipped debts. I think that's actually the mechanism I was thinking of.
1: Yes, yeah, it's definitely the the, the system I've seen uh, a couple of more experienced players going for with doubling down on on the low virtue. It's that's pretty key to that strategy, and I think. I seem to recall that player losing because he didn't quite get the right combination of cards because this is a very specific strategy that's dependent on this combination and it just didn't come out. So that might be a little bit of, sorry, a balance issue, I
0: guess, but... It's, <sighs> a, knowledge, it's a knowledge and familiarity issue and it happens with so many games, right? <laughs> like it's the same issue with Agricola or... Race for uh, the Galaxy, you know, which you mentioned. Race for the Galaxy, yeah. right. Like if the right cards come up for you, and you're playing with more of a novice player and they just don't know about that particular combination then they're they're going to be un- unaware of it and someone else can just exploit it to the extreme. I don't think that that's a fault only of this game but it's it's clearly baked in in that regard. I mean experience
1: levels and where they differ I guess is is pretty key across most board games to some degree or another. Uh, this one just has a couple of very explicit strategies to, to watch out for. And I guess because, to some extent, I guess because there is so much player interaction, it behooves those other players to counter that and perhaps be a little more aggressive with uh, rounding up that player's workers.
0: <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I think there's ways to, to counteract those things. It's just all players have to be at a similar place or a similar level of awareness one cool thing I think is the um, black market reset, which I thought wove a really nice sense of tension throughout the game. The black market is one of the, the key things
1: It plays a little more like a more traditional worker placement game where there are three spaces of the market in which only one worker can be located in each. And they all give a very specific uh, action. Usually it's collecting resources or giving some kind of uh, benefit relatively cheap the 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 downside being that you lose virtue
0: for doing that and there's only three black market actions and they will get filled up and once they're filled up that's when the infamous reset happens otherwise no other spaces have their meeples removed from them unless a player chooses to remove the, the workers from them whereas the black market once those three are full those have to be cleared, and then a certain a chain of events happens. Yeah. So those. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, let's let's do this together because I don't want to miss <laughs> any points. So the three black market spaces get cleared up. Then all of those meeples, and they could all be from one player, or they could be from three different players, go to the guardhouse to join the other meeples that might already be at the guardhouse, and then every player who has 3 or more meeples in the guardhouse what they lose a virtue is that the penalty i believe so if they have 3 or more they lose they lose one virtue each yeah right so there there is some sort of penalty if you have 3 or more meeples in the guardhouse the one player who has the very most meeples gains an even greater penalty which is they they gain a debt i think
1: correct yes and that's one of the few ways uh you you gain a debt in this game is either when that um black market reset happens or when you lose a certain amount
0: of virtue so when a player has a large amount of meeples in it and you have fewer meeples in the black market in, in the guardhouse i should say you might want to push those black market actions so that reset happens intentionally that will get those other players in trouble, especially if you have zero or one or no uh, meeples in the guardhouse, then those other guys get hit way worse than you do. It's a beautiful point of tension that's baked (laughs) in throughout the game. It's a real Inquisition
1: moment. I mean, I think that's exactly what they call it in in Paladins, the the Inquisition. Uh, So a lot of paranoia around that, especially in a a game with a lot of players, like a five-player game where so many workers might be placed in between your route, your turns that you don't ever have a choice as to when that uh, triggers. So really trying to anticipate when that might happen and, and preparing yourself and getting all your, your workers out of
0: jail in time is one of the key decisions in this game. That's the lovely aspect of this game is that it's, it's not really about you have a giant mech and you have to waste some sort of city. So I'm going to waste, you know, Daniel's city, right? It's not, <laughs> it's not really that at all is, the player interaction is is built in, you know what the incentives are, you know why people do it, it's baked right in, is that strategically, you should do it at this given time, and if you play your cards right, then you can you know, execute beautifully, you can build yourself up while taking those other two players down and giving yourself the edge. So I think it's baked in really well, and for the most part, doesn't end up with a lot of animosity that you might have in other uh, high player interactivity games.
1: Yeah, it's it's largely
0: very opportunistic <laughs> the
1: interaction in this game, and it's sort of equal opportunity. You, you you tend to be targeting various players equally rather than targeting one. You you really engage in everyone's turn. Because you're watching where, where is everyone going? Are they going to round my worker up? Can I round theirs up? You're really engaged in what everyone's doing around the table. And those turns also are, f- are flowing very quickly too. You're just putting worker down, taking that action. And those, they, it's usually at a very snappy pace. So the game flows really nicely. I found that in that regard, you know, you're not really zoning
0: out while <laughs> you wait for someone to pace their worker. And, you know, that's what I really enjoy about Garful games other than their innovative uh, mechanisms, like I said earlier, is that all of them seem to have a really conscious rhythm or arc to them. This game sort of builds and builds and builds, and you can only play so many actions once the number of, uh, I think it's cathedral spots or buildings get placed in, in this little track at the top. That's it. You know when the end of the game is coming. Plus, it only happens after players have expanded and invested so many of their meeples so it's starting to get really tense and tight and the game it builds up and up and up and really ends at a nice point and I, I sort of wanted to compare that with some of the other garfield games because um you know you've played some i've played some we've played some together the one i have the most experience with is raiders do you know that one fairly well yeah, that's actually one of uh, one of my favorites. I really enjoy that one. Yeah, I like Raiders 2. It seems from the outset very distinct from a lot of worker placement games. It's got an interesting structure. But in the end, after playing it a few times, I think it actually has a fairly simplistic gameplay arc to it. There's only so many places that can be raided. It's sort of like a checklist that everyone's filling out. And once those checkboxes are checked... The game is over, right? It's built right into the map. There are some variants with with the Valkyries or whatnot, but I think that game is sort of a little too simplistic in my mind. And through my, I think it was one experience playing Paladins, I found that to be really, really a little too brain burny and brain hurty for for me. (laughs) And I like how this game, Architects, strikes a really good balance between those two. And I think it's my favorite of the lot
1: yeah i i I have to revisit raiders especially i've only played the expansions of that once so i'm really curious to see how those uh play in in hindsight of playing these more recent games because i know a lot of people swear that it really shines with those expansions but i've played paladins quite a few times i played that before i played architects even though it was released later and I, i i really like that game it is very brain burning as you say and it's a very solitaire game, um, surprisingly. For a, a worker placement game, it, it's at the complete other end of the spectrum. Most of the worker placement spaces are on your own personal board, and you're not really competing for spaces or competing with anyone. It's, it's You really just focus on your own little tableau there. And so when I came to Architects, I was a, I was a little bit thrown off, to be honest. It felt very chaotic. <laughs> like, I, I couldn't really make any plans because everyone just keeps taking away my workers and how am I supposed to, to, to deal with that after everything in, in Paladins being so planned? So it, it took me a couple of plays of, of Architects to, to get a feel for what it was going for and then really stand to appreciate how that player interaction controls the pacing
0: of the game. So that's at the heart of good player interaction is that it's action and reaction and counterbalance right so i think it's a brilliant example of well-produced player interaction in a game uh, architects that is don't get me wrong i'd like to play paladins again i don't think i gave it a fair shot but you know it did sort of destroy me for that one time I <laughs> it. <laughs> it is a very heavy game it's hard to see all of the options uh, on your first play for sure and i haven't given um the solitaire in any of the these games a shot but i do have the raiders app and that's it's really nicely produced actually
1: well, that's something I can I can talk about a little bit. Uh, I I've know all of the games in the in Shem's series both Raiders and all of the West Kingdom games have pretty well regarded solo versions the only one I've played though is actually is architects here and it's it's fairly simple you have a, a deck of cards symbolizing an, an AI opponent and those cards represent some of the actions or some of the locations that they might go to and you're placing that opponent's workers into these spaces based on what card you draw. So it's fairly similar, but you, there is a little more predictability. You can kind of count cards a little bit. Like, you know, there's only five cards in the deck that will cause him to round up your meeples, and you've seen three of them. So what's the chances that the next two are going to come up? So you can is it a little more push your luck deterministically. So it's definitely more of a puzzle, more than the dy- dynamic system of the, of the player-based game, obviously. And it does feel a little more rushed, I think, because like, buildings don't feel as, as powerful in that version. So you really just have to race to get the cathedral build up as quickly as possible to force into the game before he just keeps racking up points. So that's more consistent the, the way the AI earns points. So you really have to, to push to, to, to put an end to that as quickly as possible rather than the, the, the
0: player-based game. It's more dynamic and you can sort of time that a little better. Yeah, I think that's the case with a lot of Euro games. Is that the solo game is at best it's a it's a different type of puzzle or exercise than the the multiplayer game is. But uh, I guess the best ones are the ones that allow you to play the most variety of uh, the core mechanisms of the game successfully.
1: Yeah, I, I certainly enjoyed it. Uh, it, it. It is definitely more of a puzzle, which there is some charm to that. But it's it's definitely a different game. Like it does feel like some strategies. Are definitely more powerful and others just don't really work. Like as I said, buildings aren't really as valuable I found in, in that version, but um, definitely worth checking out to, to sort of familiarize with the game. And it's another good way of checking out some of the, the player powers, which we haven't really discussed on yet.
0: Let's delve into that. Let's talk about the, the variable player powers. And I think we should spend a bit of time talking about the expansion too.
1: Yeah. So each player board in this game, there's, I think six or so in the, in the base game, but I have at least 20 now, I think between the expansions and the and promos and the, the Tome Saga um, sort of meta expansion. We'll talk about it later. But so each of those has one side that's all the same. So every player starts on the same level playing field. You all start neutral virtue. You all start with the same resources, but the other side has each player completely different. Sort of in a way to uh, Marco Polo, if you've played that, where every character feels a little bit op-, OP, but they're all equally OP, you know what I mean. Overpowered, that is.
0: I think uh, Eclipse does the same thing where the board literally has a sort of a generic player side, and then the flip side is quite variable. And, you know, what I really appreciated about the couple of times that I played the variable player powers is that it's not just about... Player abilities, but it's even the resources you started at, or where you are on the virtue track. Like you might start as a very bad boy
1: with half your workers already in prison.
0: <laughs> uh, exactly, and that's, a lot of money. <laughs> and that's so cool because it builds in some sort of narrative, right? Or it's a sort of a baked-in challenge that you have to overcome to achieve a certain gameplay strategy. Or it might give you, you know, a head start in a certain gameplay strategy. So I think. Variable player powers are cool. They're pretty well done. And I think they'll give a lot of extra life to this game, especially if you have, you know, all 20 of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of them may feel like they're railroading you into particular strategies, especially if it starts you at the bottom of the virtue track. Uh, but there are ways you can certainly improvise from that point. And as you say, it, it really adds into the the emergent storytelling and adds to the, the really nice thematic touches. I think we we're all talking about our, our life of crime and when we're going to turn a new leaf and start paying our debts.
0: <laughs> that aspect of it is way more evident than, you know, game like um, Terraforming Mars, where you're just a company. That doesn't tell me a story, right? I'm, I'm either the tree-hugging company or I'm the film-producing company, right? Like, But if I'm a human being with a portrait who's really bad or really virtuous and has got, got a smug grin on their face, <laughs> you know, I sort of know who that person is, right? So that aspect of it is pretty well done. Absolutely. We alluded to... The expansion,
1: for which there's, there's one come out for this game yet, so we've, we've dabbled a little bit in, uh, and I think that's definitely worth talking about. There is a second expansion that's just kickstarted a month or so ago that I'm, I'm very excited to talk about, but we do have the first one, The Age of Artisans.
0: It's been out for a bit now. I played that one time with you at your house, and the only thing I will say is that I don't feel like it affected my gameplay very much, or I didn't take advantage of... The mechanisms that it did add i'd like to say it's the latter because I, I i love this expansion to be honest <laughs> that's great i want to hear your perspective i actually want you to remind me of what is added because i don't remember much except for the 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 top and the bottom of the cards let you sort of customize your assistance and buildings is that something yeah so the, the main element of
1: this are these new cards that are dual use that you can either use to buff your assistants or to buff your buildings basically so you can either there's two sides to the cards and you either add it to your assistants or your buildings to give some additional benefit and they might be as simple as you you get an additional coin whenever you get that assistant action so the regular assistant might be you get an extra wood when you go to the forest and now you're adding a new card that gives you an additional benefit on top of that. The trick is that you can completely customize those. So now you're getting a silver or a stone or you're pulling one of your workers out of prison. So I mean, you could just double down and get even more wood or you could completely customize and mix and match what kind of bonuses you're getting. And again, there are some, you can get even more clever with the synergies, like we've discussed some of the ones in the base game, but this just doubles down on allowing some of those really clever combinations that you might be able to to discover.
0: Yeah. I guess the thing that gave me or made me a bit of a wet blanket about this expansion (laughs) is that it, it took you actions to even build up those um, add-ons, those, those buffs. So there was a lot of opportunity cost to that and i felt that that distracted me from the core gameplay mechanisms which i was still only learning by that play of the game so i guess that's why i myself didn't take advantage of them but i could see how after four or five more plays under my belt i would want that for the extra variety yeah, the trick is you're really locking you're
1: locking workers in to take these cards. You, you're putting them into the guild hall uh, where they they can't be taken out again, and you have to place them on top of a worker you've already put there. So it really controls the pacing of when you're even able to take these cards. So they, they can be pretty paced out. Uh, so they might be. It, it takes a really big commitment to grab one of these early in the game. More likely you'll be grabbing them later in the game to sort of shore up some of your, your late game. Benefits, but it's, it's, it's definitely a strategy to to grabbing those early and trying to guide your own path through a through a specific strategy in in those in those combos and I, there's mixing and matching. I I really enjoyed, but the other thing it adds is everyone every player gets a uh, a big meeple the the artisan um, that basically acts as a, as a, a double meeple. It sounds very simple. When you first place them down, they count as two meeples. Does does uh, change the pace, just keeps things moving a little more smoothly. Uh, it stops those sort of pauses in the middle of the game where so everyone's rounded up all of your workers and so you have to start all over again. So it just lets you a- accelerate a little bit and keeps th- the pace from, from slowing down too much. Similarly, you actually, you actually start the game by drafting an assistant. So everyone starts the game with an assistant already on the board, which just, just speeds things up just a little bit, keeps, keeps the game flowing quite nicely, I, th- I feel.
0: That aspect of the expansion I did really appreciate. And I suppose you could integrate just that component of it without the um, other building slash assistant buffs.
1: There are probably a couple of cards you need to pull out, but it is it is a rather modular expansion,
0: yes. That part of it I, I did really appreciate.
1: So, I mean, I definitely
0: suggest checking that out some more. Uh, it's it's it just makes the game even more dynamic, basically. <laughs> I feel like we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, I'm just going to say for this game, I really enjoyed it. Of the Garfield games I played, Raiders and Paladins, I think I like this one, Architects, the best. Of course, I haven't played Viscounts or some of the other games in the Opus, but to me, this one strikes the best balance of strategy and ease of play and player interaction is definitely tops. So I'll definitely be wanting to play this one some more. And uh, I think we failed to say it, but you can play the official module, at Tabletopia, which we have used a couple times.
1: Yes, I think all of the, at least the West Kingdom games. Actually, I don't know about Viscounts at all. I know at least Architects and so yeah, it's on, it's on Tabletopia. Both Architects and Paladins of the West Kingdom are on Tabletopia for free. I'm not sure about Viscounts. That's the one, the only one of the trilogy I've not played at all yet. It is sitting on my on my shelf of opportunity though, so that's uh,
0: one of the next games I'm planning to look at. But it's a. Pretty- I'm curious about that one. Is that the one with a bit of? deck building integrated is that right i don't know about
1: deck building it's basically a, like a, almost like a rondelle like it's a, a circular board where you're moving around this board in, in a circular pattern uh, to, to activate particular spaces uh with the big castle in the middle that, that's quite striking but uh yeah architects is, is a pretty good implementation on tabletopia so check that out for what it's worth i i think i still prefer paladins i mean i'm, I'm famously not the biggest fan of heavy player interaction i'm definitely more of a a solo player like i like those multiplayer solitaire games <laughs> and it, it, it definitely like paladins to focus on those elements a lot more whereas architects can seem a bit chaotic but if you like player interaction uh this is definitely a, a great one I, I do really enjoy architects It has a, a good way of, of framing that player interaction in sort of a controlled way that we're not everyone you don't feel particularly targeted like there the is even ways of that you can uh try and avoid that like if everyone's going to the forest a bunch of meeples are in the forest well you know that's just going to be an easy target so you might go over to the the quarry where there's no other workers so you might be relatively safe over there uh, so there, there are some ways of, of, of mitigating of, of that and uh yeah it's a, it's a great dynamic game
0: another winner we've added to our list Shall we talk about uh, the next game we'll be playing?
1: Sure. So obviously we're returning to the digital side of the coin and it is the spooky season. So I think we're going to be picking a horror game, yeah?
0: Yeah, the game we've agreed upon is called The Long Dark. I don't know if it's strictly a horror game. I've just started it myself and I think you haven't tried it yet, but it does look really moody. And to my understanding, it's a game about survival. So that part of it is
1: harrowing,
0: (laughs) uh, sure to be harrowing for sure. So yeah, that's going to come as our next episode in the month of October.
1: Harrowing is probably a better word than than horror. Uh, I don't know much about it. I did play a little bit of it in Alpha when it was just a somewhat procedurally generated survive as long as you can game. But since then, I know they've added quite a lot of story content that I've heard good things about that I'm excited to to look into. I know, I think it was actually, a, is it
0: a Vancouver studio that created it? I'm pretty sure. It's definitely Canadian. I saw a bunch of Canadian media uh, fund credits and uh, things like that on the intro. So yeah, glad to see some, something from the great North here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to
1: checking that out as we uh, as, as the weather here gets darker and colder. I think it's a pretty um, applicable game.
0: <laughs> That's right. Pull up a blanket and get ready to survive in the great uh, wild get north here. <laughs> I think it might be time to talk about uh, the winner of our giveaway, right?
1: Yes. So last episode, we announced we were giving away a copy of Cascadia, the newest game from FlatOut Games. We
0: will have some magical audio cue. And we'll be announcing the winner of that giveaway right now. The winner of the Cascadia giveaway's name is Richie A. So we have your contact information. You should see an email in your inbox shortly. Congratulations, Richie. All right. So, congratulations to our winner, and thanks for thanks for entering the giveaway, <laughs> our very first one. I'm sure there'll be more in the future, knowing knowing the games that we have on our shelves. Um, so, please look forward to that. And uh, with that, I think we should wrap up the episode. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, every, every every entry to that giveaway means at least one person is out there listening. So <laughs> thanks, to ev- thanks to everyone who entered. I think we may try and do a stream for this. We'll see how that plans out. Uh, but keep an eye on our Twitter page, I think is the main place we make any announcements. So check that for an upcoming stream. We might, we might
0: play Architects on Tabletopia even. That would be awesome. I do want to play it again for sure. Well, thanks a lot for uh, the Omni Gamers Club podcast. I've been Mark Yuasa. And this is Daniel Winter. Remember to have a balanced gaming diet.
1: (laughs) Bye. Bye.
0: Sound effects go. Cool. (laughs) 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 Sparkly music sounds.